It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. There goes the fly ball towards left field. Going back fast is Kennedy. Kennedy gets there, and he takes it. And the Cleveland Indians are the world champions of 1948. And they are leaping joyously as they go off the field. Din is being mobbed as our rule will draw. And out in center field, Tucker and Kennedy come running in arm in arm. Little tap up in the air, third base side, waiting is Tommy. Foul territory, the game is over. And the Indians have won the divisional title. Indian fans have waited 41 years. And now they can really cheer. Now the pitch. Swung on, lined to deep left field. It is gone! You should see the celebration! Out of the Indians' third base dugout, Rajay Davis, a bullet, two-run homer, down the left field line, clearing the 19-foot wall. We are tied at six. This is Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive. A regular look back at professional baseball history in Cleveland, since 1901 and beyond. Now, here's your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor. Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Tribe History presented by Progressive. I am your host, team historian, Jeremy Fedor. Before we jump into the actual nuts and bolts of the 1920 season, I wanted to take an episode to look at who the guys were on the team. I've kind of been a little vague with, with some of the players. I know I've gone into detail about Tris Speaker and Ray Caldwell and uh, some of the other guys from the World War I uh, uh, service, but uh, I've been pretty vague mostly, and now I'm going to hopefully clear that up. And on this episode, I was lucky enough to be joined by Scott Longert, Scott is uh, an author of several Indians history books. Among them is The Best They Could Be, How the Cleveland Indians Became the Kings of Baseball, 1916 to 1920. So the overlap of really what we've been doing on this podcast. So if you're looking for a a companion piece or some more information with some more detail, I I would urge you to check out Scott's books. If you've been to Tribe Fest, Scott usually has a, a table at Tribe Fest and um, his books, like I said, run from about 1916 to uh, to right up to World War II. So he's been chronicling the history of the uh, Cleveland team through that era. And in this episode, you'll hear bits and pieces from me as well as uh, my discussion with Scott. 
rolling into that 1920s season, the the Indian squad was actually pretty similar to that 1919 team that finished second place. And with that, you know, you, you had expectations uh, going into that season of, of possibly a, a contention for a pennant. You finished in second the last two seasons. And, uh, you know, the White Sox maybe were vulnerable. You had some other tough teams in the American League. But Cleveland had a solid core of guys. You start to see it in the newspaper. There was a, a Philadelphia writer in the March 19th edition of the Plain Dealer. was a little special excerpt, and he mentioned, I don't think they, referring to Philly, have any wild dreams about winning the pennant with such strong clubs as Detroit and Cleveland and the Yankees in the field. That was one of the things I asked Scott in our phone call about the expectations of the 1920 club. Yeah, the the expectations were high. Um, I think a number of writers picked the Indians to win because of uh, the talent they had and uh, how close they had come to the White Sox the year before. And I think uh, there were there were a lot of expectations for the team to uh, overcome and uh, beat Chicago. And uh, the Yankees were were kind of in the mix too but I think the majority of writers wanted to uh, believe the Indians could win it I don't know if it's ironic or just a coincidence that I'm recording this podcast the same day as a uh, Terry Francona's birthday and last season Tito actually passed Tris Speaker on the Indians all-time uh, list of wins by a manager so looking at Speaker we're going into his uh his first full season as manager of the club, uh, he had that half season last year after uh, uh, Lee Full was was fired or resigned, and now he's the the head honcho going into his spring training. So that kind of added to the expectations. And then there was a little f- funny story that was also in the, the paper: Duffy Lewis, who had spent time with Speaker in, in Boston was meeting up with his team in Florida when he stopped by the Cleveland club. And he said to speaker, mighty fine looking ball club. You have spoke. Uh, he said to his old Boston teammate and he says, there you go. Trying to make it tough for me by saying we ought to win the pennant. I suppose uh, that was speaker's response. And then it, uh, Lewis mentioned, well, the team that beats you out will win it. And it was kind of an embarrassing situation for Speaker. Uh, the plane dealer said, no one takes into consideration the fact that he is a new manager, which he'd only been managing for half a season prior to that. And every critic is picking the tribe to win. If it does take the pennant, it will be taken as a matter of course. And if it does not, Speaker will be blamed. So it looks as if Spoke had nothing to gain and everything to lose. I don't know if you call that a catch-22 or he's just kind of darned if you do, darned if you don't kind of situation where, yeah, I mean, he's kind of behind an eight ball that he's got this great team, and if they win, well, you had the great team, but if you lose, well, it's just poor managing. And again, I I wanted Scott's uh, perspective on that situation. Yeah, Speaker, he was, as far as I know, he was really optimistic. He thought he had the team, he had the pitching, 
and the hitting to uh, to win it all. And, you know, he stressed, uh, you know, a lot of running and, uh, you know, hit and run, stealing bases, doing the little things and uh, everyone, uh, you know, to play hard. He was um, he liked the platoon system. That was something he favored. And he had six outfielders. So he really liked the idea of uh, the lefties they had in himself and Elmer Smith and uh, Jameson and let's see, Jack Rainey. And then he had two righties in uh, Joe Wood and Joe Evans. So he thought he had a good rotation there. He could really cover the outfield. And the infield was real solid with Gardner, Chapman, Wamby, and Doc Johnston and Steve O'Neill catching. So he had a really good ball club and he would tell the fans, you know, from uh, spring training, we're going to be in it. You know, we're going to be, we're going to be fighting for it. And I think he believed they could win it. So um, I think there was a real optimism. They, they had the talent, they could put it together and, and they could, uh, they could bring home a pennant finally. And if you remember last week's episode, when I spoke with Jacob Pomeranke about the White Sox, you mentioned Kid Gleason was the kind of manager that would just make his lineup and keep it as it is and, and ride with that versus Speaker, who liked to uh, like to play the lefty-righty game. And there was actually a funny little story in 1921 after, uh, after the 20th season by a Detroit writer, and he, he wrote, Should Triss ever hear of a player that can hit left-handed and right-handed pitchers, he will refuse to sign him, for a bird like that can wreck the speaker system. Speaker now is looking for a second trainer. This guy, Percy Smallwood, who is doing the work now, is a right-hander. He does very well with the left-handers on the club, but the right-handed players are suffering, and Speaker will have to get a left-handed trainer for them. Cleveland has two groundskeepers of equal ranking. One is a right-hander, and the other pulls dandelions and other weeds with the left hand. The ticket sellers and ticket takers at Dunfield working relays, right-handers on Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays, and the left-handers on the other day. Cleveland fans are also carefully arranged. The right-handed bottle throwers are on the right side of the field, and the left-handers in the left-field bleachers. There is a right-handed and left-handed scoreboard boy. Playing baseball in Cleveland is a cinch. A player works only half the time and is paid for full time. So there was some uh, gentle ribbing to uh, the speaker system or uh, the way Tris Speaker went about managing. Diving into uh, the players of that club, we're going to start with the catcher, Steve O'Neill. Steve was actually entering his 10th season as a member of the tribe. And it's easy to say that and with a lot of these guys, they're, they're forgotten greats, but they, I mean, it kind of is true, especially with Steve O'Neill. Um, he goes on to have this wonderful baseball career, not only as a player, but as a manager. And he, uh, you know, later on goes and helps Feller when Feller makes his, uh, his introduction into pro baseball. But O'Neill, he's a native of Manuka, Pennsylvania, which is outside of, of Scranton. And he was one of four brothers who played professionally. And it was said he was the 10th of 13 children. Now, I'm currently quarantined with with two that are under five. So I I can't imagine uh, dealing with with 13, but, uh, you know, different times. It was his brothers, Jack, Jim, and Mike. And they all played professionally, but none of them equal the success of Steve. It was actually uh, one of two families to have at least four brothers play in the MLB. 
the other one is a, a Cleveland family, the Delahanties, which hopefully down the line I'll I'll tackle for a podcast. They're also a fascinating baseball family and uh, the story of, of Ed Delahanty and his uh, sojourn um, over Niagara Falls, I guess, the, where he met his end. Um, but he's buried, I believe, in Calvary Cemetery. I'd have to, to double-check that. But nevertheless, uh, you know, two baseball families, one of them born in, from Cleveland, the other one with Steve O'Neill playing in Cleveland. And Steve dropped out of school somewhere around the fifth grade and joined his father in the coal mines of Pennsylvania. But he followed his brother's paths and kind of fell in love with sports and, and baseball his brother, Pat, had put together a club called the Manuka Blues, and Steve got his start there. In 1910, Steve received his first professional contract uh, on another team managed by a different brother, this time with Mike on the Elmira Colonels. And the story says when the Colonels catcher went down, Steve was able to step in and get playing time. And later on, long after the fact, Steve recalled his choice to become a catcher. He said, besides, I couldn't run very fast, so I figured that was the best position for me. Steve catches the eye of Philadelphia Athletics manager Connie Mack and is picked up by the A's and sent to one of their minor league clubs. However, he was purchased by the Indians in 1911 and played actually nine games for the club in, in eleven. And as the years went by, he began picking up steadier and steadier playing time. Eventually, he would play in 100-plus games for at least 10 seasons. It's another one of those trades or those pickups from from Connie Mack's clubs that is a head-scratcher for them, but a grand slam for Cleveland. And Connie was on, on record saying, if it were not that we are going to get Ben Egan from Baltimore, I would certainly have hung on to O'Neill. But we cannot use all the good catchers there are. And rather than keep O'Neill down any longer, I let the Naps have him. He can throw like a shot and is a mighty good man in other ways, especially at the bat. And when you look at the careers of, of the two, Ben Egan goes on to play only 51 games for the Athletics, and O'Neill plays... Uh, 1,365 games for Cleveland. And there was excitement for O'Neill. In 1912, the sports writer for the Plain Dealer, Henry Edwards, said, O'Neill has shown that he only lacks experience to be a star receiver. And that was really true. You see, again, O'Neill's numbers begin to pick up as he gets more experience. Another thing about O'Neill, you read from accounts from some of his pitchers, is that there was a comfort level, too, that, you know, it could be a, a full count with a, a bases loaded and he's going to call for a pitch in the dirt because, you know, he's going to block it. He says, he'll, I think he told Feller, it's in one of Feller's books, I believe, or I came across it somewhere where, you know, he just told Feller one of his, uh, I think it was his debut game, the exhibition against the St. Louis, just to, hey, throw it, I'm going to stop it, so don't don't feel, uh, you know, nervous about anything and, uh you know, I'll be there to to keep the ball from getting behind me, so feel free to throw something in the dirt. A quick sidebar to on O'Neill. One of the uh, more unique requests or, or things I got to do in my job uh, a couple years ago, there was a, a group from Ireland that came over. I think they were the PBS equivalent 
uh, over there. They were doing a documentary on Steve O'Neill, and it was all in Gaelic. So they interviewed me, and I had a link to watch. It doesn't work anymore, or else I'd send it out. But it's it's was neat to see uh, what they put together and how they uh, uh, went about about doing all that. And obviously, Steve is still remembered. Uh, some of his brothers were born over in Ireland. He was born in in the United States. But again, a, a real unique aspect of the job and. Uh, it was it was a lot of fun, and it, it's it's neat to see some of our players still remembered like that in a in a different country. And Scott gives a a good description of uh, O'Neill's abilities behind the plate and what kind of catcher he was. Yeah, he was uh, a very tough guy to, to put it in a few words. He was real strong behind the plate. A catcher that could, you know, go out there and catch 150 games without a problem. You know, he could shrug off any kind of injury. He was um, really noted for blocking home plate. He was a master at it. Even when he would get a leg and a shoulder out there, even before he had the ball, so he had the collision before he even caught the ball, grab it and uh, put the tag on a guy. He blocked the plate, you know, before he got the throw. A lot of teams would complain, you know, the umpires about it and complain to Ben Johnson, but nothing was done. So he was, you know, really good at that. He was kind of feared for he was he'd been a coal miner. Uh, he had boxed and wrestled. Johnny Kilbane was one of his best friends, you know, the world champion, I think featherweight. So he'd go sparring with guys, and he was just really the guy you wanted behind home plate. And by now, he had turned into a real hitter. Before, he was known as defensively, but he had gradually become a good hitter. He could hit 300. So I think, you know, he was one of the best catchers in baseball at the time and really fit what the Indians needed there. So a guy that they could count on to be there day in and day out and play hard and hit really pretty well, which he, which he did all year and in, in the World Series. So they were really gifted. They really were, were lucky to have a catcher of his caliber behind the plate. And as Scott and I were talking Again, it's it's apparent that these trades with Connie Mack were just uh, so lopsided that it tipped the scales in favor of, of Cleveland by far, especially when you look at the amount of games that Steve O'Neill played versus the guy that they had coming up, Ben Egan. And then on the other hand, we, we spoke about it in the last episode where the tribe picked up uh, Charlie Jameson and Larry Gardner, along with uh, another pitcher, Elmer Myers. And Jameson went on to have a, a career in Cleveland that is still very impressive. Um, and, and Gardner as well was a veteran with, with great experience. So, again, I wanted to pick Scott's brain on, on that subject. Yeah, they called him Jamie. He uh, 1919, he was trying to find his way, but by 1920, they had him pegged as um, one of the better outfielders. So Graney would start, Jack Graney would start the season. He'd been uh, the regular and left, but it was pretty obvious that Jamison was going to have the job and he was going to be their leadoff guy. That trade was absolutely ridiculous. That was, Connie Mack had made a number of you know bad deals, but that one was just amazing to give Cleveland not only Jamison, but Larry Gardner, you know, a veteran, a really great third baseman, practically nothing. You know, Bragg O'Roth had been nothing but a problem in Cleveland. And to get these two high-quality players, that was that was an incredible steal. And I think really that 
gave us a shot at the pennant right there, adding those two guys to the team in 1919. You're adding a, really a, a strong part of the lineup, guys who would hit over 300, you know, and uh, Gardner would knock in over 100 runs. So they uh, they actually fleeced Connie Mack. I don't know what he was thinking, if anything, when uh, he made the deal. You should, give, you know, give Jim Dunn credit, too, Dunn for, uh, for orchestrating that deal. It was just uh, amazing. Without it, I doubt they would have they ever won a pennant in that in that time period. In 2016, it was my first year kind of leading the way with the Indians Hall, Hall of Fame, and that's the year Jameson went in, and he went in with, with Tommy and Bell and Frank Robinson, and it just seemed fitting to go in you know, with a guy like Tommy, who was such a fan favorite of, of his era, because Jameson was a huge fan favorite over the courses of his career with the Indians, and Again, kind of forgotten. Um, he was mentioned in the papers during that inaugural class of of Indians Hall of Famers, but you know, for whatever reason, he just didn't catch on. And obviously, we had a, a large lull in our Hall of Fame voting, so it was a long overdue uh, induction. And it was nice to see Charlie get into the Hall of Fame in 2016, but. Jamison becomes a, a fixture in the Cleveland outfield for about 14 seasons and fans love him. He's a, a fan favorite. They go so far as to have a Charlie Jamison day later on in his career and is uh, amongst the, the most well-liked players of, of that era. He just, again, kind of gets lost in that shuffle of the uh, post-1920, pre-Bob Feller 1930s years um, where you know, they have some decent teams, but they never quite uh, have the same success as Speaker's 20 team. So I think Jamison kind of gets forgotten in that shuffle. And again, he's he's not a sound, <laughs> Hall of Fame caliber. You have some of these guys around the periphery of, of being Hall of Famers. And while Jamison's numbers are good, um, you know, you look at some of the rankings, the, the Jaws ranking and where he is on that and uh you know cases can be made but also um you know you can you can argue either way and again that's in the beauty of of baseball charlie jameson is is from patterson new jersey which uh if that sounds familiar it's also where larry doby came from um he actually wasn't born there but larry moved there as a a youngster Jameson is a bit of a late bloomer. Um, you know, he's 27 years old going to that 1920 season. Uh, before that, though, he, he said he started playing ball at 15 on a semi-pro club called the Patterson Lafayettes. And he also wanted to say that his father played semi-pro ball with, with John McGraw. So he's got baseball in his blood. He has supportive parents. Usually, you know, during this period, there are parents that don't want their children to become baseball players. And then there are some that are just uh, super supportive. And uh, he was on that supportive side, but yeah, again, he, he platoons in that 1920 season. But after that, uh, in those following years, you know, 21, he plays 140 games the next year, 145, 152, 143, 138 and 143. So, a very durable outfielder and a, a very durable player. 
And as Scott mentioned, Larry Gardner, again, a, a veteran and uh, adding to that good mix of younger guys and veteran guys. And Gardner is also from the uh, East Coast, played college ball at the University of Vermont, where he uh, ended up signing with the Red Sox and played with with Speaker and Smokey Joe Wood out in Boston and, and won a couple of World Series. So not only are you adding a veteran presence at third base, you're you're adding a buddy of Tris Speaker and, uh, again, strengthening the, the team. And for me, just going through those newspapers, it, it seemed that the focus of that trade was Elmer Myers. They were looking, again, for pitching, and those other two guys were just kind of parts of it. But, again, it's it's mind-boggling how – how great of a return they got for in that trade for Brago Roth and you know, Scott and I talked about that a little bit more. Really, I know Speaker played much of his career with Gardner, so Speaker knew what he was getting in Gardner. You know, the third baseman he wanted. You know, Myers was, uh, I guess, had some skills, but um, you know, his his status was real questionable. And uh, Jamison may have been a throw-in, but I think the Indians knew his potential that he could be a really outstanding ball player. So, um, holding enough for Myers, yeah, maybe so, and maybe they had expectations for him. But uh, the key thing in the trade was was Gardner and Jamison. You know, whether or not Myers could play was you know was was something else but uh yeah that made the thinking at the time it may have been that yeah Myers could contribute uh, possibly in that 1920 season Elmer Myers actually ends up playing 16 games for Cleveland where he's sent off to uh Boston where he plays 45 over the next couple seasons but as we mentioned in that previous podcast he was just never the same after his World War One experience where he was gassed and uh, uh, his career just kind of um, stalled. And he played some minor league ball after, but was never able to, uh, to get back on the uh, major league level with any sort of success. Continuing with the theme of the outfielders of that club, uh, Scott actually spoke about Smokey Joe Wood, who made a name for himself in Boston as a pitcher until he, he damaged his arm. And uh, I'm actually going to save Smokey Joe for his own episode either next week or in two weeks. Uh, I need to figure out how I want to lay that out. But uh, there's a, a biography on Smokey Joe that came out a few years ago by a, a retired professor, Dr. Gerald Wood, no relation to Smokey Joe, Um but he, he details Joe's life in a very readable fashion, and it, it won awards and was recognized by, by Sabre. And we actually had a, a pretty lengthy conversation about the life and times of Joe Wood. So we're going to turn that into its own episode and just a fascinating story. And I'm, I'm really excited to, to work on that one and get that one out too. So we're going to kind of slide by Smokey Joe for now, but he is not forgotten. He will actually have his own dedicated episode. And that next player we're going to talk about is Elmer Smith. And if you recall in that first episode, I opened up with a quote from Elmer where he says, every ball player has some time or other has something special. You see a lot of players, they have a wonderful year. And then the next year they don't have a good year. It just happened that 1920 was my good year. And, Talking to Scott, you know, 
Elmer really downplays what a career he had and uh, just kind of seemed like the person that Elmer was. But Scott dives a little deeper into uh, Elmer's career. I think Elmer was was better than that. I think he, he had several good years. He uh, he was a power hitter. He was a lefty, and he was a guy that could hit it over the wall at Lexington, over uh, at League Park, and put it on Lexington Avenue. He he was our cleanup guy. And it, originally they said they traded Elmer away before the war, which I'm not sure why why they did that. But then they got him back, and he was our guy. He uh, he had a tremendous year in 1920. Sure, he hit. Uh, something like 10 or 11 home runs and they knocked it well over a hundred, but it was interesting in 1920, he had two grand slams during the season, an indication of things to come. He was really smacking the baseball and just having a tremendous year, but he was pretty good in 1921. And uh, before that he was had a good reputation as, as a power hitter. So I don't think he was a, a one-year wonder. He was a, a pretty good guy. I guess his, his years in New York didn't, didn't turn out that well for him playing with Babe and and the other guys when the Indians traded him away. But uh, Elmer was uh, was an excellent ball player, really good. In the days when you didn't really couldn't hit the ball very far, he could and hit some you know tremendous home runs for him. Um, he's a local guy from Sandusky area, and uh, turned out to be a really really good ball player for us and uh, led us in twenty and. Um, and they didn't trade him. I don't know what might happen, but I thought it was interesting. After Elmer left the major leagues, he went to the Pacific Coast League, and he set some incredible records there. I think he hit something like 160 home runs in three years, something like that. He was just unbelievable. In like 50 year, one year, 57 another year. Um, he he was. Uh, I would say I wouldn't call him a, a one year guy. Maybe that's what he thought he was. He was a pretty solid uh, right fielder, and uh, he would excel in the uh, 1920 World Series. And uh, when we really needed a lift, you know, the game. Game uh, five was extremely important. He came through in, in a huge way, and, and uh, I think he'll always be remembered rem- remembered for that. And I think Scott's right in the fact that Elmer was uh, really just kind of a humble guy. Uh, Wambi mentioned uh, after Elmer had passed later later on in life, he said he kept to himself, hustled, and played good, solid baseball. He didn't make much of a fuss about anything. I'll always remember him for the way he hit the fastball. He was one of the best left-handed hitters of the day. Boy, did he have strong wrists. The Tribe purchased his contract from Duluth in uh, 1913, and by 1916 he was traded to Washington. The plane dealer had mentioned it was more of a desperation move. The the Tribe was three and a half back in the standings and were trying to make a move to uh, to strengthen up their, their pitching, and it actually backfired or it just it was a a snowball where they were in the middle of a losing streak and by the end of it they were actually eight games back so perhaps one of those regretful trades and his trade was a a bit of a shock because Elmer really liked playing in Cleveland and the the paper noted that parting ways with the Indians was a hard jolt for Elmer Smith who was of the opinion he was a life member of the tribe he has nothing against Washington but he liked his teammates and Cleveland so well he did not see how he could become reconciled to signing up with any other club. Uh, manager Lee Full went to say, I hate to have you go, Elmer. You were with me at Waterbury, and it feels almost as if you were my own son. But we need a southpaw pitcher more than we need a hard-hitting outfielder, and we have been forced to sacrifice one department of our team to order to strengthen another. And again, it, it just didn't pan out. Um, they, they, were, they fell behind by eight games after this losing streak, and they were Elmer Smithless. 
Nevertheless, though, Elmer was back in Cleveland by mid-1917, so all seemed to be right. Now, my last few episodes have been running pretty long, so I'm going to try to keep this one a little more concise and break it up into a a multi-part episode. So for the last player on this episode, we're going to look at Jack Graney. If the name sounds familiar, uh, it might be because the the Cleveland Sabre group is named after Jack, or you might recognize the name. He was actually the first ball player to transition to the radio booth, so he holds that distinction as well. Nineteen twenty season was going to be Jack's eleventh season, eleventh full season. He had had played a couple of games in nineteen oh eight, but in terms of actual uh, substance, this was his eleventh full season with the the club, and it was the uh, the the winding down of a, a pretty good career for a, a ball player, and he was a, a fan favorite and someone that would be remembered, obviously not only as a player but later on as uh, as a broadcaster as well. And perhaps in the future, there's a, an entire episode about Jack. I, I just need to dive into it a little more because there are all these uh, fantastic stories about his career, you know, on the field as as well as off the field. And uh, Jack was was from Canada, and he ended up getting his first shot in baseball with the the Cubs organization, but that didn't stick. And like Jameson, he actually came up as a, a pitcher, but that didn't pan out well. One of the stories was that when he was coming up in 1908 with the, the club, then known as the Naps, he was pitching and was trying to impress manager Lajaway, who was taking BP, and got a little wild and hit Nap on the, the head. And again, not if you're trying to impress your your manager, that's not the way to to go about it. And as the story goes, Jack was called into Nap's office, and Nap said pretty much that you know wild guys go out west to correct themselves in terms of uh, you know controlling their ability to pitch. So uh, Jack didn't really stick much with that 1908 team. And by 1910, he had reinvented himself, and the plane dealer had mentioned that there's one individual that believes Greeny will be playing in Cleveland's outfield by 1911 at least, and that individual is Jay Gladstone Greeny himself. He broke into the game as a pitcher and has acquired more or less fame as a slapster during the last two years. Greeny becomes this wonderful bit of trivia as well. He just happens to fall into all these these random bits of trivia. He becomes the first batter to step into the box in a major league game against Babe Ruth when he was pitching for the Red Sox. He was the first batter to wear a number on his sleeve when he stepped into the, the box in 1916. Um, and, uh, you know, there's this other fantastic story. And again, hopefully we'll, we'll get into a full episode about Graney at some point or another, but... He had a, a a dog that became a mascot for the club, more or less. Uh, the, the dog's name was Larry. It was a, a bull terrier. And if you look at photos around that 1913, 14, 15 period, you'll see the dog in the team photos. He does tricks. And uh, 
it's in newspaper reports. And I think I mentioned it in one of the podcasts. He was, he, they do tricks before games. He would, uh, you know, be around the club and there were stories that he could get onto a, a boat and, and get off at the right stop and head to, to Jack's home in Canada. But, uh, you know, I don't know if that's one of those stories that's, that's gained a lot more steam as time has passed, but he, he actually met, uh, I think it was Woodrow Wilson. It was one of the presidents when they were out in uh, in D.C. So this dog has this fantastic history, and there's some great photos of of Larry the dog. But there's custody battles over, and there's a deeper story to it that will be told on a another day. But nevertheless, again, Graney was um, was really much a, a staple of that era of Cleveland baseball. And here Scott gives a uh, another perspective on on Graney's career with Cleveland. Yeah, Jack Jack started for us initially in twenty. Jack was uh, had the starting job in left field, but uh, he gave way to Jamison uh, fairly soon. So I don't think Jack played in more than maybe sixty sixty five games because when they uh, Jack was a lefty as well. So when they had a, a lefty pitcher, they couldn't handle Joe Evans. Doctor Joe was was in the lineup and not not grainy. But Jack was a real popular guy. He was what they call the great sun fielder. I guess in the afternoon games at uh, League Park, the sun would really shine in the left field. But he had a knack for able to be able to pick out the ball, even though the sun was in his eyes and handle it. So that was he was valuable there. He was a good leadoff man. He could walk. He could knew how to draw a walk, frustrate pitchers, you know, fouling off six or seven pitches and drawing the walk and getting on. And Chapman would move him to second, and he'd be on second for Smith or uh, Speaker to knock him in. So he was he was a valuable. Guy. Guy. He was, I think, in his 10th year, maybe his 11th year. So he had slowed down some, but he was, I believe, Ray Chapman's roommate. The two of them were like, they called them like Burns and Allen, you know, the comedy routine and two real popular guys who were real respected on the ball club and uh, and close friends along with, with Graney O'Neill and Chapman and, and some of the other guys were, were very, very close. So he made his contributions. He didn't do much in the World Series. That was strictly uh, Jamison played and then uh, Joe Evans played a couple of games against uh, left handed pitching. So Jack was kind of an afterthought in the World Series. I don't think he batted more than he might have pinch hit a couple of times, but uh, he did contribute, you know, early in the season. Then down the stretch, he got a few starts when uh, Evans, Dr. Joe got Tomain poisoning in Boston. He was out for almost a month. So uh, Jack got some playing time then and he filled in. uh, He filled in very well. So and for now, that's that's going to be all we have on the podcast today. I, I want to keep them a, a little bit shorter. Like I said, I was kind of getting long-winded on some of them, and I hope you enjoyed the the previous podcasts. Um, I just uh, I think this one will will break apart and do a, a few episodes pretty nicely. Um, as I mentioned before, we're going to have an episode on uh on Smokey Joe Wood and then also down the line I, I just had a a nice phone call with Mike Soul who's the author of The Pitch That Killed which uh again is one of those seminal works on Cleveland Indians baseball it's the story of of Ray Chapman and Carl Mays and that fateful day in in August of 1920 so uh that's going to be coming down the the pipe soon as well but uh Right now, we're, we're we're diving into these players, so obviously I, I've kind of skimmed over Smokey Joe, and I'm going to skim over Ray in the next episode as well. That way uh, we can let 
um, Mike and uh, tell the story about the Ray Chapman and, and the fence from that day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Our Tribe History presented by Progressive. And I hope you will join us next week as we continue our deep dive into the 1920 Cleveland Indians baseball team. You've been listening to Our Tribe History presented by Progressive with your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor.